We will be reading the whole chapter of 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. They no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing is happening happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that, that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of your suffer but let none of but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, that will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, when will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to, as to a faithful creator. Maybe seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4. Father, I pray this morning for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, that you would make straight paths for their feet. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And Father, through these persecuted followers of Jesus, 
I pray that your word would run swiftly, would be glorified. And Father, even in the midst of chains, Lord, I pray that you would renew their minds and make them increase and abound in love to one another and to all so that you may establish their hearts blameless in holiness before you at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Father, this morning as we have your word open before us, may we be reminded of what's going on around this world that we live in. And may we truly remember our brothers and sisters in chains as though we were with them. Just now, Lord, I pray you would open your word to us. Teach us by your Holy Spirit, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we look at the word, it's kind of a segue into this passage. We're parachute dropping, if you will, into the middle of a book. In this case, First Peter. I think it's important for us to, to maybe turn our attention to a place we ought to be somewhat familiar with in the book of Acts. And we go back to the book of Acts and we see there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is saying, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and very ends of the earth. We see then shortly thereafter in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon those gathered together. And what were they to do with that power? Again, according to what Jesus says in Acts 1.8, they were to use that power and the person of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Jesus all of their days, beginning in Jerusalem. And so we see the first seven chapters of Acts essentially taking place in Jerusalem. And so Peter and John and the rest of the apostles are being witnesses to Jesus. That's what we see happening. In Acts chapter 3, there's this, this man who for some time had been lame and he'd been brought to the gate called Beautiful. And he's healed. And this healing causes quite a stir among, among the people who are gathered around Solomon's porch. And there's preaching and teaching that happens as Peter and John are are giving testimony to the great things God has done. And as soon as they are heard preaching and teaching, as soon as the crowds gather, who should show up but the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. And they show up and they put him in prison and they ask him some questions. And one of the questions that gets put forward is, by what power or what name have you done this? And then it says in the text, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 4, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the one who just came down in Acts chapter 2. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spoke to them. Well, the command comes on the heels of that not to speak or preach in the name of Jesus. And the words come there in verse 18, 19 of of chapter 4. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they're threatened and they're released. There's a gathering. The the brothers and sisters gather together for prayer. There's this uh, lifting up of their hearts to God. 
asking for boldness, increased boldness to continue speaking of the things of God, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this assembly, we see that at the conclusion in in verse 31 of chapter 4, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. It was shaken. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And we see the church continuing to move. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 speaks to this continuing movement and life and activity of the church. Power was among them. And we see it evidenced by the Holy Spirit in them. The Holy Spirit is moving in them. And the word was being preached and taught. And people were healed. And the power of God was flowing through the apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see there in in chapter 5, verse 17, the high priests and the Sadducees, they hear news again about what the church is doing and they get arrested. The text says in 19 and 20, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice that the angel doesn't say, go, flee for your life, run, go, they're going to get you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, go where? Go back into the temple. And preach. I've always, I've always loved that particular passage because it says a lot, I believe, about what he's called us to. He's not called us to be safe. And sometimes we pray, and I understand, and I think those of you here understand when we hear somebody pray to keep us safe. I think we understand what someone's saying, but the reality is we are not to be always looking out for the safe way, the safe thing. And we see here evidence of this in Acts chapter 5. He says, go, I want you to stand in the temple, and I want you to preach, and I want you to teach. Well, they do that. The next morning, they go to the prison. They're trying to find the apostles. They can't find them. And someone says, hey, they're out in the middle of the temple. They're preaching again. So what do they do? They go, and the authorities discover this, and they bring them back in for more questioning. And it says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And Peter answered, we ought to obey God rather than men. We are his witnesses to these things. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. And so also, I love, that, I love that phrase, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, Peter says. And when they heard this, Acts 5.33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Well, Gamaliel gathers the council and he gives some Wisdom, some advice to which they accept and receive. So they call the apostles back in. And don't miss this, no small thing. They call them back in and they beat them. They beat them. And then they warn them once again, command them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And then I'd like to read Acts 5, 41 and 42. On the heels of getting beaten and threatened. So they departed from the presence of the council. What did they do? Did they, did they walk away from the council, dragging their feet, head down, ready to leave? No. Look at this picture. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, this encompassed their life, friends. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Remember the mission. Wait for the power. The power is the person of the Holy Spirit. And with this power, they were called to be a witness to Jesus. 
You see, the book of Acts, it displays the early church and the effective testimony of the gospel as it moves to the end of the earth. And when you read Acts, the person of the Holy Spirit is moving, empowering, emboldening the, the church to be a witness to Jesus. Empowering them to carry out the mission that Jesus himself proclaimed back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And the more the gospel gets preached, the greater the level of Jesus that gets proclaimed. What, what do you notice in the book of Acts is that that brings on a higher intensity of persecution. So we have this idea of persecution, this reality of persecution, which leads to, as we get to in Acts 7, martyrdom in the life of Stephen, which leads to scattering, which leads to proclamation of the word, Philip, Acts chapter 8, right? And the word, actually, the gospel ends up expanding, not because of nifty church growth ideas, but the church actually started expanding into Judea and Samaria through persecution. That's how the gospel moved. Persecution continues as Paul once saw the hater of the Christ followers. He travels to the end of the world. We, we talked about this, his missionary journeys. And, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's preaching and teaching Christ. He's reminding people about Christ. He can't help but speak, he says to the church at Corinth, of Christ and him crucified. That's the theme of his message. And so the Lord's church is growing and it's moving and yet suffering. It's growing and moving and yet it's suffering. Persecution is following them. And the book of Acts ends with, in fact, Paul, where? Where's Paul? He's in prison, isn't he? He's in prison. He's preaching the kingdom of God to all who come to his house. And you finish the book of Acts and, and you, you come away with this understanding that the church, those who, who bear the name of Jesus, they experienced a heavy dose of persecution. Gospel proclamation led to persecution. But persecution led to the gospel expansion. God's way of growing his church, strengthening his church, maturing his church... It came through the fiery trials of persecution. And the Christians of the early church actually exercised their faith in Christ, rejoicing, Acts 5 says. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And Peter was a fisherman by trade. We're reading his first epistle. It's important to understand and look at Peter for just a, a moment. He, he was a fisherman by trade until the Lord came by his way, called him and said, follow me and I will make you become what? A fisher of men. I'm going to make you become a fisher of men. And Peter's life was drastically changed, transformed from the day he dropped his nets. Peter was taught by Jesus himself. He walked with Jesus for some three years. He witnessed his sufferings. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. Peter is a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. He's a witness of it. He was around during the days of his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. He's the one who denied Jesus three times. Remember that? Shortly before he goes to the cross. In that moment... He opted to escape persecution when he was confronted about his identity with Jesus. Do you remember that? Not once, not twice, but three times. 
He was the one pointed out as saying, hey, you're the one who was with Jesus. And no, no, it's not me. And someone else says something about it. Nope, you've got the wrong person. Finally, it gets to the point where he curses the No! This is the same Peter. Following his ascension, after the Holy Spirit comes down, what we see is, is Peter boldly walking into persecution, willing to suffer shame for the name of the one he once denied. And the Acts account speaks of Peter as the rock. You know, in John chapter 1, when Jesus and Peter had that first encounter in John chapter 1, Jesus points out, and Jesus oftentimes is doing this, he's calling people not by their name now, but by who they are going to be, who he is going to make them to be. And he calls him, he says, you're Simon, but, but you're going to be Cephas, which means stone, or what we know him as a rock. He may not have been a rock in the Gospels, but by golly, you read the book of Acts, and he is a rock. He stands firm. He stands strong through the storm, through the persecution. This is the Peter that Jesus said back in John chapter 1. You are Cephas. That's who we're reading about right here in this epistle, 1 Peter. This is a man who has gone through the fire. This Peter, who is the writer, he's writing approximately 30 years removed from the death of Jesus writing to a scattered group of Gentile Christians in the region of Northeast Asia Minor. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us who he's writing to. He's writing to help equip these saints with the truths of persecution. He's a pastor at heart. 1 Peter chapter 5, he, is a, he deems himself a fellow elder. A fellow elder, he's a pastor at heart, writing to this scattered group. He's explaining to them how to endure trials that are upon them and some that are yet to come. He's writing from Rome, more than likely, the reference to Babylon in chapter 5, verse 13. Shortly after Paul's first release from prison, 63, 64, somewhere in there, Peter has insight, it seems, into the fiery trials that are coming to those who bear the name of Jesus. And so it's almost like he's just reporting, here's what's coming, friends. It's coming. He, he sees it. It's coming. And if it's true that he is in Rome as he's writing, perhaps he does very well know that it's coming. Because if you know your history and you know your timeline, you know that right around 64 there was a, an emperor named Nero there was a fire that happened in Rome. And you know the persecution that came out as a result of that fire in Rome. And so that's the context. See, Nero was blaming, uh, blaming Christians for the fire, which ends up stirring the persecution fires for those in Christ. You see, what for so long had been widely accepted by Rome as just a part or a sect of Judaism... If you go back through Acts and you note the number of times, note the number of times when the government actually served to be helpful to Paul and his ministry, right? Now, at the point in time Peter is writing, it seems that Christianity was pinpointed as its own religion, a religion that needed to be stamped out according to Nero and those who followed him into the early second century. This was a time of heated persecution. They had been persecuted. We just read the account of that in Acts. 
But Peter now is announcing to them, hey, these fiery trials that you're in, I want you to know that there's some other things happening here around the pike, around the bend, and I want you to be in the know. It's happening. It's coming. Barclay in his commentary says that First Peter was written to strengthen the men and women who were in danger of losing their lives. Written to men and women who were in danger of losing their lives. Those in chains around the world. Those suffering unjustly at the hands of wicked men. In an effort to carry out the mission. Many of our brothers and sisters have found themselves surrounded by evil doers. Bent on eliminating the name of Christ. And his dear brothers and sisters find themselves daily in danger of losing their lives. I haven't felt that danger of daily possibly losing my life for standing up and speaking in the name of Jesus. I highly doubt many, if any of you, have felt that either. But as we come to see, just because we don't feel that, just because we don't experience that ourselves, gives us no license to push this text, push this whole persecuted church idea to the side. As though really, because it doesn't matter to me, I can't relate to it, These are some things that maybe we're thinking. Instead, we ought to consider that 1 Peter would have been an encouragement to these brothers and sisters' soul. A message of comfort, a message of hope, a word of familiarity, as Peter speaks quite often. He speaks as if he knows something about the persecution he's speaking of. Peter has been in prison. He's stood before governing authorities testifying to the gospel of Jesus. He's been on death row. You remember Acts chapter 12? He's on death row. James has already been killed by the sword. Peter is in prison. The next morning, he is about to be executed, just like James. And what happens? The text tells us that while he's in prison, the church is praying. The church is praying for him. And we see that an angel shows up once again. An angel shows up, rescues Peter. This time rescuing him away from what in that moment would have been sure death. You see, Peter knew. Peter was on death row. Peter knew what it would have been like to taste death as being something imminent. Here he is in prison and he's sitting in his cell and he's waiting because in his heart of hearts he believes that when the sun comes up, he's going to die. Peter knows what it's like. And you know, anytime we're reading a book or reading something from someone, we we always take greater delight, it seems, in the fact that we're reading about someone from the perspective of someone who's been there. And so we can take heart that even though we ourselves may not have been there, we are reading from one who is moved by the Spirit who has been there. He has been through the fires of persecution. Peter's been there. And you're here and you're sitting here this morning, you might not be in danger of death, but you might be going through some fiery trials connected to who you are in Christ. 
Because you see, the name of Christ is offensive, isn't it? The name of Christ is a stumbling block to many. It was then and it still is today. First Peter serves as an instruction manual for those walking through the fiery trials. It's written by one who's experienced his own fiery trials. And he's also been an eyewitness to the fiery trials in the life of Jesus. The one writing is speaking with authority. He's moved by the Holy Spirit in his writing. But yes, we can also say with certainty, and Acts chapter 5 was a a case in point, not only is he moved by the Holy Spirit in writing, but this is a man who has been filled in his living life, filled with the Spirit, speaking to this subject matter. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, talks about the inspiration of the Scripture. And it says, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God. This, This is one of the holy men, Peter. He's speaking as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. Sufferings, trials, persecutions, hard times. Peter is writing about these very things in the context. Listen, in the context of the Lord's second coming. And first chapter, verse 5. He's talking about those who are kept by the power of God through faith for what? For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see in verse 13 of chapter 1. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12. He's talking about how they are to live as sojourners and pilgrims. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We see in chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. We see in our text for today in verse 13. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And verse 17 talks about this time for judgment. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about this whole idea of being a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. See, all these references to the second coming, the Lord's return. This is the backdrop, friends, of Peter's letter. And you know what I find hard to be? It's... It's hard to to miss this as you read this, as you're studying this and looking at this in detail. It seems that persecution and trials, they they seem to dim a bit in weight and value when hope of heavenly things to come are highlighted and brought into proper focus. You know the song that we sometimes sing, uh, the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and grace. In that, that writing in Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about this light affliction, which is but for a moment. And we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are eternal, things that are not seen. Peter is addressing this letter to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he addresses them as sojourners and pilgrims. A people passing by. These are a people group passing by, looking expectantly... To their heavenly home prepared by Jesus himself. 
in no way am I endeavoring to minimize the chains and the suffering that these brothers and sisters are enduring. But I am referencing the joy of setting one's mind on things above, of seeking things above, of living out, even amidst persecution, what it is to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. When you arrive at 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19, you are already familiar. If you read the entirety of, of this epistle, you are already familiar with this theme of suffering when you get to chapter 4, verse 12. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak of suffering, and chapter 5 speaks of suffering. Chapter 4 then adds to the conversation of suffering. I'd like you to listen because I, I think that there, there may be some here who are inclined to tune this message out thinking that since I'm not experiencing any kind of suffering or persecution, this isn't speaking to me. For those of you who may be thinking that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 10. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from prison at the end of his life. Here's what he says. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. By the way, if you remember your, your Bible, you remember what happened to him at Lystra. He was stoned, left for dead, right? What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Look at verse 12. Yes, and all, not just him, and all who desire, all who what? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul is telling Timothy, this isn't just about me. No, no, no. In fact, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So it seems that suffering is a part of what it is to bear the name of Jesus. How many of you here would profess to be a Christian, a Christ follower? According to what I, I see in the Bible, part of what it is to bear the name of Jesus is to be willing to go through the fires of persecution for his name's sake. I believe on one hand, many of us know that to be true. I, I don't believe that in reading 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, I, I don't believe that verse is a surprise or a verse that you've never read before. I, many of us know that to be true and yet isn't there something of this lacking in our experience. We, we know of it, but we've yet to experience the kind of fiery trial that Peter is speaking of and that Peter himself is in the midst of, perhaps. So how do you respond to the text when it seems difficult, difficult not to understand necessarily, but difficult to grasp from an experiential standpoint? I was thinking about those things this week as I'm looking at this text. Are you at liberty... To dismiss a text because you can't relate. We need to remember. All of the word is profitable. Isn't it? It's all profitable. It's all of God's word. And so from there I'd like to, to help, help us understand and grasp this. As we look at Hebrews 13.3 which is a passage that oftentimes is put forward. When we're discussing a persecuted church. And our brothers and sisters around the world. It says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, 
since you yourselves are in the body also. Remember the prisoners. Not because you've been one yourself necessarily, but remember them as if chained with them. Imagine what it would be like to be chained for the name of Jesus. In the world we live in today, reports abound of ISIS and their track record of of killing Christians. Stories of missionaries and preachers being in prison for opening the Bible and proclaiming the gospel truth. Remember them as if chained with them. Now, I don't know that we tend to remember them in this way. Acknowledging a day of prayer for the persecuted church and for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, it's not intended to end on November 2nd. By the way, today's November 1st. So we're not just upholding them today and going, oh, let's, let's celebrate, let's honor, let's... And then tomorrow we go back and, and we forget them for the next 364 days. No, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to stir up, to spur us on, to pray diligently for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and to remember them each day. They do need our prayers. In fact, I was listening to something not too long ago and there was a report from the field and they were asking a persecuted brother the question, Someone from the States was asking this persecuted brother, hey, what is one thing that we can do here in the States to help you and others like you around the world? And the first thing on the list was prayer. Prayer. Friends, we can't minimize the power of prayer. We've already seen in Acts chapter 5, we see it in Acts chapter 12, the power of prayer. But the need to pray for those in chains. When, when, when the word says to remember, to remember as if chained with them, one of the ways we remember, one of the ways we engage in this is to diligently, actively pray for them. I know that washing yourself in the scriptures that speak of suffering and persecutions, reading the testimonies of brothers and sisters on the front lines, experiencing firsthand the the fiery trials of persecution, reading biographies perhaps of of some of the folks. I've got some in my book bag this week that I was reading through, just washing myself once again in the lives of some of these brothers, uh, the Chinese missionaries, uh, Brother Yoon and, and, and Watchman Nee and and also Richard Wormbrand of, of Voice of the Martyrs and, and some of the stories that are there. And there's all kinds of biographies that you can read and get a glimpse of some of these brothers and sisters who have been in the fire of persecution. I'm telling you, when you do that, when you wash yourself with some of that, coupled with what you know the word to be, to be true here, it changes you. It does something in here. It does something. It spurs you on. This is not just something to think about periodically. It becomes a part of who you are in Christ. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we tend to remember the things that remain on the front burner of our minds. And I would ask this morning as we look at the text, are the persecuted prisoners, these real brothers and sisters, flesh and bones like you and me, are they on your mind? Are you praying for them regularly? See, I believe that living what Watchman Nee calls this normal Christian life, living the normal Christian life will result in ongoing persecution in this world that we live in. 
in the midst of an ungodly and pagan culture, godliness is not hard to spot. But friends, you and I both know it's not tolerated either. It's going to be spoken against. And the arrows are going to be flying your way. Many are going to hate you, the Bible says, on account of Jesus. Living like Jesus, walking in the Spirit, which we're called to do, by the way. This will stir the embers of fiery trials in the world. It seems, and we see this, all, we see it every day. It's in the news, it's around us. We see and hear that the world cannot listen to the voice which is Christian, which is speaking the truth of God's word. Any other voice seems to be tolerated, but the Christian voice. The Christian voice seems to especially annoy, especially turn off those in our world today, doesn't it? The world is doing what it can to essentially gag the voice of the Christian. One of the ways they do that is through persecution. So what happens then to the voice of the Christian? Do we cave in? Do we capitulate? Do we just give up? Do we hide in a corner? Do we cower in fear? Do we give up trying to voice the truth, thinking that it's all for naught? Christian suffering... Suffering that comes in the name of Jesus for the cause of Christ because one is bearing the name Christian. How do you live in the world? Here's a question. How do you live in the world but remain true to Christ even when it means suffering could result? Now there aren't very many of us here that like the idea of suffering. I don't believe it's something that we would naturally choose. But when we put our hands to the plow and we say yes to Jesus, one of the things we've got to remember, friends, is where our Savior went. Where did he go? He went to a cross. He went to a cross. That's where his earthly life led. And we can rejoice in that because that cross, that cross is something that we today Rejoice over. And I pray we ought to rejoice over every day. He willingly did that. Out of love for you and me. You look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. And he begins with beloved. Beloved. Loved ones. Term of endearment. Beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. The fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. First thing I'd like you to see here is that we ought to be treating suffering as common. It's common. He says, don't think it's strange. That's the negative end. The positive end is, treat it as common. Treat it as common. It's not strange. Do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Peter says, suffering is coming. But don't think it a foreign thing that it's coming. He's addressing them here and he's preparing them to receive suffering that's headed their direction. Peter sees it as he's moved by the Spirit. He sees it and he's letting these pilgrims, these sojourners know. Don't let it come as a surprise. Don't be caught off guard by the trials of persecution. He says a little bit later in chapter 5, your brotherhood all around the world is experiencing the same sufferings. Chapter 5 verse 9. The same sufferings. 
You're not going through something that's, that's unique in and of itself. He said the brothers around the world are going through the same sufferings. It's not uncommon, but it is normal for Christ followers. Prepare yourself to walk through the fiery trial. Don't let it catch you off guard. Be ready when it comes. We see verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So treat suffering as common, but here in verse 13 we see that we're called to rejoice in the sufferings. Rejoice in the sufferings. Do not think it strange, but rejoice. Now to many of us, in our humanness, this sounds a bit twisted. Rejoice in my suffering? We might be reminded of that verse in James chapter 1, he says, my brethren, count it, all what? count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we go, huh? That's a passage that for a lot of people, that just, it's, a, it's a head scratcher. How does Peter here in, in, in Peter chapter 4, how does he qualify the rejoicing that's called for? He says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That word partake in the original language is the word we know as koinonia. We partake. We share in. We partner with. We are fellowshipping with. That's the idea. Partake. Koinonia. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Now, have to admit, it seems so much better to rejoice when you partake of Christ's benefits and blessings. Doesn't it? When we talk about Christ's benefits and blessings, everybody in here is going, sign me up. I want to be there. I like that. That sounds really good. See Jesus? Yep, I want to do that. Be in heaven with him for all eternity? Yep, I want to be there. Oh, sign me up. I'm ready. But as soon as we start talking about Rejoicing when you partake of Christ's sufferings. That word suffering. For many of us, it's just a downer. And just, I don't want to be a part of that. Let me ask you this morning, do you know anything of Christ's sufferings? We are to be a partaker of Christ's sufferings. It's important that you would know about Christ's sufferings. It's hard to partake of something you know nothing of. When we look at Christ and we look at his life, one of the things that we see is that Christ really in many ways, yes, he had his 12 who were closest to him, but even the 12, majority of the time in the Gospels didn't seem to get much of what he was saying. Christ was very lonely. Christ was very unpopular. His message offended many. Christ had many problems while he walked the face of the earth. We see time after time people seeking his life. Christ suffered pain while he was here. 
Remember, he was flesh and bone just like you and me. He experienced the heartache of those who turned away from his message. He wept over a city who rejected him. He knew the pain of being rejected by men. He experienced the very real pain and agony of the cross. He died and the cross being the ultimate expression of his sufferings. Barclay in his commentary says that when people suffer for their Christianity, they are walking the way their master walked and sharing the cross their master carried. And we see glimpses of this in the scripture. In Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, it talks about this whole idea of suffering. In Romans chapter 8, I'll turn to it and read it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see, suffering's a part of this. What it means to be in Christ. Our union with Christ. The picture of our union with Christ is that we have died with Christ... We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We can't get to the raised and walk in newness of life without the dying part. That's why we see in the Gospels in chapter 9, he says, if you're going to follow me, here's what has to happen first. You have to deny yourself. And then take up your cross daily. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we see some of the same idea here expressed by Paul. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. See, he, he had this idea, this mentality, that he suffered the loss of all things because of Christ. But he counted them as rubbish. Paul wasn't walking around, oh, I don't want to let go of these things. He let them go because of Christ. He counted them as rubbish, as dung. That he might know Christ. And we keep reading there. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And here it is, the fellowship, the koinonia of his sufferings. Rejoice, Peter says, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. The result? What's the result? What's the idea of putting this into practice right now? He says in the text that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The rejoicing that's called for now is only a glimpse of the joy that's waiting when the glory of the Lord is revealed See, the rejoicing now that's mandated, if that is the course that we trod. He's saying, consider the gladness when Christ comes back. When we sing that song, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all get to heaven, when we all see Jesus. It's true. But we need to ask, will he find you faithful when he comes back? Or will he find you faithless? 
Will he see that you are rejoicing over sharing in Christ's sufferings? Or will he see a man or a woman who proclaimed to follow him, but yet seemed to turn and run when it had anything to do with partaking of Christ's sufferings? Any interest in koinonia with Christ's sufferings? Rejoicing now in his sufferings brings an even greater joy when the Lord of glory returns. Look at verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, for the name, reproached for the name, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Here in verse 14, I believe we need to see the blessing in the suffering. See the blessing. See the blessing in the suffering. And here I'd like to turn your attention to Matthew's gospel. In Matthew, near the beginning, Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Beatitudes, pick it up in chapter 5, verse 10, the last of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he says, blessed, double blessing here. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and here it is, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward, where? In heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love that last line because it reminds us again, just like what Peter does in his epistle. Hey, the brotherhood around the world are experiencing the same sufferings. Jesus says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets before you suffered the same kind of things that he's calling them to. He's not calling the people to do something that people, other people haven't done. If you're reproached, persecuted, reviled, spoken against falsely, blessed are you. Blessed are you in that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Is is the kingdom of heaven enough? Is knowing that you have the reward, a great reward in store waiting for you, is that enough to go through the fiery trials that are yet to come? The blessing of God upon you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Blessed is the one who is reproached for the name of Christ. And we see, you know, what what difference does this blessing make though? It it goes on and it says, "If if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God. That's one and the same person. The spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. The same spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days is the spirit who rests upon you in the moment of blessing. He is both a spirit of glory and a spirit of God. He's powerful and he's mighty. He's revealing and he's transforming. He's a spirit who not only rests upon you, but he's a spirit who abides within you, the Bible says. He abides within you. Who is it that speaks of the name of Christ, but one filled with the Holy Spirit? One filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Those who reproach the name of Jesus are blaspheming, the text says. Those who are being reproached for the name of Jesus are glorifying him. The Spirit in us does that work, glorifying the Son and the Father. That's what his ministry is, one of his roles. He glorifies Christ. He glorifies the Father. And so the Spirit at work in us ought to result in a a man or a woman that gives glory and gives honor to the Father in heaven through Jesus Christ who saved us. This reproach for the name of Christ, we've heard stories. Stories are all around us today. Stories about counselors, stories about a florist, stories about a baker, a government official who actually stands up for what she believes and holds fast to what she holds to in terms of issuing marriage licenses. Here recently heard story of a, of a football coach who was suspended for publicly praying with his team. You see, at different levels, there is reproach for the name of Christ in the world we live in. Right here in our own backyard, in our own neighborhood, in our own country these United States of America. These things are happening. Reproach for the name of Jesus Christ. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, the text says, blessed are you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. I think that's that's important for us to understand. The blessing of God in our life, not when we skirt persecution, suffering, but when we actually, for right reasons and right purposes, which we'll read in just a moment, walk through that. Blessed are you. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. I think here he's saying, study the how not to suffer list. <laughs> study, make sure you take a good look at this, how not to suffer. Don't find yourself on the end of being a murderer and suffering because you've murdered somebody. Don't find yourself in the midst of suffering because you've stolen something from somebody. Don't find yourself on the end of suffering having done evil. And that word, a busybody, is an interesting word. It's the only time it's used in the the scripture. It's a long word and and it's it's actually a compound word in the original language. And and, and the the one word, alatrios, means belonging to another. And episkopos is looking upon or looking into. So literally it has in mind, looking upon that which belongs to another. And so... Folks have rendered this in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that they they would translate this is Peter is saying in this list in verse 15, don't suffer as one who covets what someone else has. Others would hold that this is saying, hey, don't don't be caught suffering as one who meddles in someone else's business. And that seems to be the way the New King James translated this as a meddler, a busybody. But I believe there's also another, there's a third way that that I I came across in in some studies that I believe is very helpful for a further understanding of the passage and very well could be the intent in which Peter is setting this forth. He's he's speaking to the suffering as one who looks down upon something foreign to himself as a Christian. And that would mean, according to one of the writers here, that would mean entering into undertakings which do not befit the Christian life. This would mean that a Christian must never take an interest in things which are alien to the life that Christians should leave. Are we 
interested in the things that really as a Christian ought to be foreign to us? Are we looking into things that we ought not be looking into? Are we suffering because we have, we have crossed over, if you will? The Bible says we cross over from death to life. But perhaps what he's talking about here is this suffering. We have crossed back over in some regard to want and desire some things that are over here that as a Christian we ought not even have desire with. Are we suffering because we've jumped the fence and we decided to go partake in this other thing that we ought not partake in? I believe that's in part what he's getting at here. And we need to be careful. He gives us a list. And we need to probably be studying this list. How not to suffer. See that you're not caught suffering in these ways. This is not glorifying to God. Look at the very next verse. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Notice verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. The list. Yet, if as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So Peter's saying, don't suffer according to the list in 15. But if anyone suffers as a Christian because of the name of Jesus, let him not be ashamed on one hand, but on the other hand, let him glorify God in this matter. So he gives us what not to do, and he gives us what to do. Verse 14 says that you are blessed when you are reproached for the name of Jesus. Verse 16 instructs us on how the heart should respond to such suffering. He's telling us how our heart should respond. First of all, in a negative, it should not be ashamed. We should not be ashamed when suffering comes. But we should glorify God in it. That reminded me of our chief end of being here, right? That first question in the catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. Yet suffering is not typically what we like to consider when we think of glorifying God. But isn't it true that whether by life or or death, whether in good times or in bad times, fiery trials, we can glorify the God who made us? We can glorify Him. You know, we think about examples of this. We think about a a wedding, a marriage ceremony. And in in a marriage ceremony, we can bring God glory. Conversely, we can also think and look to a funeral. A funeral can also bring God glory. See, in life or in death, God can receive glory. Paul says in Philippians, For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. We can give God glory whether in our life or in our death. That's why it's so important that bearing the name of Christ, that we die well. We die well. We don't run from it. The persecuted church is not ashamed of bearing Christ's name. And they're going to speak about it all the way to the end. And I praise God for their testimony and their witness. There's something here about being ashamed. I was drawn to this in 16. Let him not be ashamed. This is the same man who denied Christ. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. 
Listen, handling the suffering that comes as a result of being a Christian. What are we doing with the suffering that comes as a result of bearing the name of Jesus? We're called to glorify God and not to be ashamed. Not to be ashamed. Are we ashamed of Christ? Are we ashamed about what people are going to think about us if we speak the name of Jesus? Are we ashamed of his word? Some of us maybe intentionally don't carry our word with us. Now we can have this ultra-secret hidden weapon in our phones or in our gadgets. We don't have to carry our Bibles around. And perhaps some like that. But I like carrying around the word. And I'm nothing against those who have the Bible on your phone. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. All I'm saying is it's visible, people see it, and it can be a conversation when we're out and about. Are we ashamed? Look at 17 and 18. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? I believe there's, he's highlighting for us right here that judgment time has come. It's come. Church, judgment time has come. Peter uses here a proverb, Proverb 11, 31, and verse 18, to support and further question his readers regarding the judgment which is now at hand. He says there, if, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So 417 and 418 both ask questions. Do you see this? They're both asking questions. In 17, it's what? What will be the end of these who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? I'd like for you, if you will, to turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians because I think 2 Thessalonians answers these questions. And I think they're helpful for us to be able to know the answers to these questions that Peter is posing. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 1. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your what persecutions and tribulations that you endure. They're going, the church at Thessalonica is going through it right now as he writes this letter, which is manifest, look at this, the persecutions and tribulations that they're enduring, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when here on earth no when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the question back in Peter. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Paul seems to answer that question right here in 2 Thessalonians. Flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know and do not obey the gospel. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. 
You see, the context of 1 Peter is the pending suffering, the warning of the fiery trials yet to come. And he says, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Suffering as a Christian, glorifying God in his name. Time has come for judgment. The house of God is his church. What Peter says in his epistle, the holy nation, royal priesthood, a body of believers who obey the gospel of God. And the question then comes, what will happen? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? You see, there are those who are being persecuted, but the persecutors need our prayers as well. You know, we're talking about praying for the persecuted church. I don't think we get through this without also submitting the need to pray for those who are persecuting. In fact, Jesus calls us, does he not, to pray for those who are persecuting us? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us what's going to happen to those persecutors of Christ. They will experience the flaming just fire. It's just. He's just to do this. They're going to experience the flaming fire of vengeance from the Lord himself. And friends, this on one hand is very tragic. To see the end of the lost. To see the, the, the demise of one who has chosen to live his life in such a way without God. Apart from Jesus Christ. That ought to motivate us to pray and to speak up regarding what we know to be true. Regarding this judgment to come. But I believe we also see hope here for what might seem like injustice in the here and now. What might seem that way. We see the Lord watching over his children. He's interceding on their behalf. He's securing for them a reward, a rich reward of eternity. And he's also punishing the ones who had troubled them here on earth. He's doing that justly. The Lord God is just. He is holy and he's faithful. He's faithful to his own. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, it says in verse 18. That word scarcely has in mind with difficulty. With difficulty. And one writer says that the words do not imply doubt about the salvation of Christians. But instead emphasize the the greatness of God's effort in saving them. You see, this is where Peter is drawing attention to the great mighty God who's orchestrating all things. It's by his grace that we're saved. It's by his grace that we continue to walk as a Christian. In the context of suffering, in the midst of Christ's return, the ability to endure the fiery trials of persecution and suffering, we have a Savior who modeled this for us. But we also know the suffering produces perseverance in us, that our faith gets tested as we go through the fire. The suffering that we go through is not unique either. Remember that the brotherhood around us in the world are experiencing the same sufferings. That's why in chapter 5 of Peter, verse 12, Paul is giving the purpose of his writing. He's talking about, by Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. What's he written to do? Exhort and testify. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. It includes and involves the suffering. It includes and involves persecution. Judgment begins at the house of God. And the assumption here is that the church is following the one that they proclaim. In a very real sense, they are experiencing judgment first, having been persecuted, many of them even unto death. The joy is that we know our end in Christ 
death has no sting. To borrow the words of Paul from Corinthians 15, Hades has no hold on us if we have died with Christ. We can be assured of the hope and the promise that we're going to be raised with Christ as well. I was reminded of the song that we sing of no power, no scheme of man, no power of hell can pluck me from his hand. No matter what it is, that's secure. And what does God's judgment lead to in the text as Peter closes? Look at the last verse. This last section. He he concludes here this last verse in verse 19. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. He's a God that can be trusted. This, this, God would, this, this is a God who can be trusted. I think this is a fitting conclusion. He can be trusted. Commit their souls, that idea of committing, committing their souls to him. It's a technical word for depositing money with a trusted friend. You know, back in the day, they may not have had banks necessarily, or at least all that secure of banks and so if you were going on a journey or a trip, you might be inclined to leave your money with a trusted friend, right? Today we have banks, we have the, uh, the label, what is it, FDIC, right? Uh, that, that's supposed to mean something, right? It's supposed to. Um, that there's, we can put our money in that bank and be assured that they're going to keep it safe. It's going to be there when we wake up the next day, Right? Well, what we have here in this idea of committing our souls, those who suffer according to the will of God, remember, according to the will of God, not not the list of verse 15, but those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. And so what we see here is that this God that we serve is able, he's able, we are to commit our souls to him Because he's able. That song we sing, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is what? He's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, capital D, right? Have you committed your soul to him in doing good in that way? Do you see God as a faithful creator? I think that, that, that plays a large part in this as well. That, that reference to creator is a flashback to Genesis, to the one who made all things. This is the God who made all things on day six. We've been studying this as a family. This is fresh on my mind. Day six, he made what? He made man. He made some other things, but let's get to the chase. He made man and he made woman on day six. He made us. We're talking about the one who created us. Listen, if God made all things, if if God put everything in motion, if God in his understanding of how everything was going to work sent Jesus to redeem man, don't you think that you can commit your soul to him in doing good? Don't you think you can trust him? The writer says if we entrust ourselves to God, God will not fail us and we only need to look in the gospels to see the truth of that in Luke 23 verse 46 Jesus 
time of the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, he placed his life in the very hands of his father. The question is, will we do the same? This commitment of our soul is coupled with doing good. It it's, goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Witnessing in the world to the power of Christ in us. Richard Wormbrand, which many of you are familiar with, with Gospel of the Martyrs, in the context of communism. He says, Christians, and this speaks to the, the living this out, the, the being Being the one that we profess to say we are. Being this person. He says Christians are often half-hearted on the side of the whole truth. In his context, he says communists are wholeheartedly on the side of the lie. And we we can subtract communists and maybe put in other groups today. Who are passionate. Who are all in on the side of a lie. And here we have Christians who are half-hearted on the side of the whole truth. And here's what he said about the underground church. This was interesting. He says the underground church is a poor and suffering church, but it has few lukewarm members. That's what happens in the fires of persecution. In the fires of persecution, one sees very clearly whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian. Whether you're really following Jesus or whether you're just talking about Jesus. The fires of persecution will bring to the surface those who are truly His. I praise God for these men and women who are modeling for us an example of what it is to walk by faith, holding on, enduring to the very end, trusting God who is their faithful creator. Friends, we have a faithful creator. And the one who spun everything in motion back in the day is the same one who is watching over, providing, guarding, protecting. He is more than able to keep the very thing that we're committing to him. Will we commit our souls to him? Two hands to the plow. Will we do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that we have opportunity to remember, to truly remember our brothers and sisters in chains. And you've called us, Lord, to remember them as if we were chained with them. Father, I pray that your word this morning has been helpful for all of us to be able to see how it is we can truly remember them. Not just on a day, but Lord, throughout our lives. To be able to remember them in prayer. To be able to stand with our brothers and sisters. Which then ought to bolster our own faith. Strengthen us. Give us boldness and courage that we read about in Acts. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit. To do nothing more than speak the name of Jesus. That is still our mission, to be a witness to Jesus today, even in the context of the fiery trials coming. So, Father, I pray that as you've sounded your warning in the word today, Father, that we would be attentive to hear that warning. We would not turn away from the warning, but we would walk wholeheartedly 
after you. Knowing good and well, it's coming. The fires of persecution are coming. But Father, may we hold on to the hope. Hold on to the joy. Hold on to the good news. The truth that we have in Jesus Christ. That one day, this coming of the Lord. He's coming back. And Father, if not, if we die first, before his return. Father, we still have hope. And knowing that we get to be with you. We get to see Jesus. There is a great reward awaiting us in heaven. And Father, we are looking forward to that. We are to be a people who eagerly look for your appearing. Help us to be bold and stand true upon your word. Open our lips to speak the name of Jesus. People today, Lord, need to hear about you so much. And we oftentimes walk away from them without saying anything about Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would stir each one of us up. If we have the Spirit of Christ in us, may the Spirit of Christ come shining through us, I pray. In all of our relationships, I pray it would make a difference. Just as the building those believers were praying in was shaken, I pray, Lord, that you would shake us. Move us to be the rocks that you've called us to be. You didn't just call Peter to be a witness. You called all of us here who proclaim the name of Jesus to be a witness. May it be so. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.